Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Bottoms up. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 59, Death Becomes Her. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. I hope you're all continuing to be safe and Covid free. Um, You'll be pleased to know if you listened to the last episode I wasn't feeling very well um, but you'll be pleased to know that I'm feeling much better than I was when I recorded 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, so that's nice. Um, whether this is your first episode of Verbal Diorama or your 59th episode, thank you, as always, for joining me. Um, well, actually, let's be honest. You're not joining me. You're joining some Hollywood icons because I know you're not here for me. I know you're here for Marilyn Goldie and I'm fine with that. Like, I've made my peace with that. It's fine. Before we start... Um, I just want to thank everyone for the uh, like, love and whelm for 10 Things I Hate About You. It was um, a really fun episode for me to do, but also a really personal episode. Um, And it actually turned out a lot longer than I intended. But you know what? I had a lot to say. (laughs) Uh, And 10 Things I Hate About You is one of those movies that I can just watch, enjoy. Um, But I had a lot to say about difficult women and Heath Ledger and uh, stalking for love and and all of those kind of weird tropes that 10 Things I Hate About You tries to dispel. And I will add that it's an episode that I'm actually very proud of. (laughs) Uh, And while for this episode, Death Becomes Her wasn't my first choice, 
um, for episode 59. And I'm not going to go into why again, but I did kind of mention it at the end of the previous episode on 10 Things I Hate About You. So if you really want to know why episode 59 is not what I intended it to be, then have a listen to that episode um, and find out why. Um, But I'm actually quite happy that Death Becomes Her is now episode 59 because do you know what? It's an absolute delight of a movie. It really is. And it's got a great cast and it's got great special effects. So yeah, let's go into Death Becomes Her. And now, a trailer. Not a warning, a trailer. Um, And it's worth mentioning, this trailer actually includes a lot of scenes that they cut from the finished movie. But I'm going to go into the reasons for those cuts a little bit later on in this episode. Don't you know that it's worth Every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. She was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Are about to go too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning. Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are. But you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, it's a miracle, and Gordy Hawn. Look at me, I'm soaking wet. Death becomes her. I just have to make a telephone call. When aspiring novelist Helen Sharp loses her fiancé to former friend and Hollywood movie star Madeline Ashton, she winds up in a psychiatric hospital. Years later, she returns home to confront the now unhappily married couple, looking radiant and exuding success. Madeline becomes desperate to know her secret and depressed at her ex-friend's success. She purchases and drinks a mysterious elixir which grants eternal youth and beauty, but is warned to take care of her body. It turns out, though, that Madeline and Helen have more in common than wanting the love of Dr. Ernest Menville. The cast of this movie is pretty phenomenal, really, for any movie, um, but especially for this one, because we have Meryl Streep as Madeline Ashton, Bruce Willis as Dr. Ernest Menville, Goldie Horn as Helen Sharp, Isabella Rossellini as Liesel von Roman, Ian Ogilvie as Chagall, Adam Stork as Dakota Williams, Michelle Johnson as Anna Jones, Mary Ellen Trainer as Vivian Adams, 
Uh, and Mary Ellen Trainer was actually married to Robert Zemeckis at the time. And you'll recognise her from other massive movies of the 80s, including Romancing the Stone, Lethal Weapon, the Le- all of the Lethal Weapons actually, Die Hard and The Goonies as Mikey and Brandon's mother. And finally, Fabio as Liesel's bodyguard. And if you're of an age where you don't know who Fabio is, it just he's just a really, really attractive guy who for some reason was really, really big in the 80s and 90s. No idea why, but Fabio is in this movie. Uh, it was written by Martin Donovan and David Cope. You'll remember that name from the episode that I did a couple of episodes ago, actually, on Jurassic Park. Uh, but that is not the only name I'll be repeating from Isla Nubler. And finally, it was directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, at the time of Death Becomes Her's conception, so to speak, Robert Zemeckis was knee-deep in Back to the Future Parts 2 and 3. And at the time, Zemeckis had had a pretty stellar directing career. He'd started in the late 70s, but had received acclaim in the 80s, starting with Used Cars in 1980, which was not a box office success, but now considered a cult classic followed by Romancing the Stone in 1984, which was a surprise hit and super fun too, I might add, which led to him writing and directing Back to the Future in 1985, arguably one of his biggest ever hits. Then, in 1988, came Roger. And I've done an episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's episode four, so if you haven't, uh, please consider listening to it. It is an older episode of this podcast, and by that I mean it's got a different theme song, And because it was only the fourth episode, I haven't listened to it in a while, I'll be completely honest. Um, But I was probably a lot less confident back then. So it probably just sounds a little bit weird. But um, in that episode, I do go into detail on how Who Framed Roger Rabbit came to be made. And it really is a fascinating, miraculous tale. It's safe to say Who Framed Roger Rabbit was hard work. But nevertheless, post Roger Rabbit, Zemeckis was working hard again on the Back to the Future sequels, which were famously filmed back to back. Death Becomes Her actually started out as a Tales from the Crypt sequel. Tales from the Crypt started out as an EC Comics segment, which ran from 1950 to 1955, uh, with different names for the first 20 issues before becoming Tales from the Crypt from issue 20 onwards for a further 27 issues until the series was cancelled in March 1955. Tales from the Crypt was a horror anthology comic with each issue, two stories were told by the Crypt Keeper, one by the Vault Keeper and one by the Old Witch. A 1972 movie directed by Freddie Francis would consist of five anthology segments, mostly based on the EC Comics series. Uh, This was also followed by the popular HBO TV series, which was also called Tales from the Crypt, which ran for seven seasons, including a final British season, which also had spin-off movies, including my personal favourite, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, which I recall watching a few times as a kid, and I have no recollection why, but I must have found something really enjoyable in it, but I can't actually remember what that was. Uh, so t- who knows? I might have to rewatch it. Uh, Demon Knight came out in 1995, and that was followed by Bordello of Blood in 1996. A third film, which was supposed to be called Body Count, was never made. And at the time, quite a lot of stories were actually being uh, mooted to be Tales from the Crypt movies. Um, So even movies like From Dust Till Dawn and The Frighteners, both of which I enjoy very much, by the way, and are both on my list, uh, they actually both started out as potential Tales from the Crypt movies. So 
the very premise of Death Becomes Her, sounding exactly like a Tales from the Crypt story, is not really that strange. And perhaps Liesl von Roman is the Crypt Keeper in disguise. And if so, it's a pretty good looking disguise. If I could disguise myself as Isabella Rossellini, know that I would. <laughs> Death Becomes Her is sandwiched between Back to the Future Part 3 and Forrest Gump in Zemeckis's directorial library. And so it's really easy to overlook Death Becomes Her or just to kind of see it as a bit of a zany black comedy. Um, but it actually means more to the special effects industry than you might think. It was initially critically panned on release with critics stating that it was, and I quote, one of the most heartless mainstream pictures ever made and fancy special effects and relentless sadism. Obviously, the main drawer of this movie was always going to be the on-screen duo of Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. The fact that Bruce Willis is also in this movie is often overlooked, but considering at the time he was John McClane, this was really, you know, outside-of-the-box casting choice uh, for this kind of meek, buffoonish, bumbling uh, Dr. Ernest Menville. Kevin Klein was initially up for the role, um, but... As I've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, he seems to really like declining roles because um, <laughs> uh, he also declined the lead role in Galaxy Quest as well. And Ernest really is overshadowed in this movie, but he's supposed to be. I am going to talk a little bit more about Ernest later on, but Death Becomes Her really was uh, the choice role for the pairing of Streep and Horn. Uh, Meryl Streep and Goldie Horn were good friends who wanted to share the screen together. And obviously at the time, both were considered screen icons. Uh, Horn for her comedic chops and Streep for being one of the most versatile actors of her generation. And arguably Meryl Streep still is uh, considered uh, one of the greatest and most versatile actors of her generation. Goldie Horn has obviously since more or less retired from the silver screen now. She does pop up occasionally here or there. Goldie Hawn at the time um, was known for her ability to play dumb blondes. She won a Best Supporting Actress Academy Award uh, and Golden Globe for 1969's Cactus Flower. And in the late 70s, she wanted more control over the roles that she was being given. She ended up founding the Horn Silbert Movie Company with Anthea Silbert and started producing roles for herself to star in, which started with Private Benjamin in 1980. Goldie Hawn might have been a very on-screen bubbly persona, but behind the scenes, she meant business. Her business partner, Anthea Silbert, would go on to produce Wildcats and Overboard, which Horn starred in alongside her longtime partner, Kurt Russell. In fact, Goldie Hawn's business savvy was mentioned in the previous episode on 10 Things I Hate About You, when she oversaw her daughter, Kate Hudson's potential casting as Cat Stratford and advised her daughter not to take the movie. As I said last episode, though, let's not be too sad for Oscar winner Kate Hudson. Meryl Streep, on the other hand, has never really been interested in starting a company or having a side business or anything like that. Meryl Streep is 100% an actor and is, as I said, seen as one of the greatest in the business. With Meryl Streep in your cast, your movie is elevated. Meryl Streep was the first actor to receive 20 Oscar nominations. She is the 8th, 9th and 10th youngest Oscar nominee and currently has 21 nominations to her name. The male equivalent, which is Jack Nicholson, only has 12. 
She has also received nine Golden Globe Awards, including the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement, with an additional 33 Golden Globe nominations. Meryl Streep is arguably one of the most acclaimed actors in history. Um, So the fact that she's in this movie and she puts a performance, a comedic performance and a musical performance as good as she does, she's... She's got the range. She really does. I think she's brilliant in this movie. It was Thelma and Louise that initially interested Horn and Streep. And before Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon got the parts, Goldie Horn and Meryl Streep invited themselves to Pathé to discuss, which was before they got involved, a smaller indie movie. Casting director Becky Pollock, daughter of Sidney Pollock, who actually cameos in Death Becomes Her as the ER doctor, noted that they were both enthusiastic and that they had their own ideas for the ending of Thelma and Louise. In the end, obviously, that casting fell through, not because of created differences, but because the production simply couldn't afford both Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. It was then that Death Becomes Her entered the picture, and both Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn were eager to work with Robert Zemeckis on this story of two rival high school friends of exuberance, youth and obsession. It's been said that Meryl Streep accepted the movie on the belief she would be playing the less showy, uh, and I use that in inverted commas, role of Helen. Uh, But it has to be said that seeing Meryl Streep singing and dancing is something you would never actually expect. And because she's playing so against type, it works so spectacularly well. Meryl Streep chews the scenery probably more than Goldie Hawn or Bruce Willis does, uh, and it really, really does work. Death Becomes Her was originally conceived by writers Martin Donovan and David Cope as a modest indie movie with a $5 million budget for one of the big stars of yesteryear, like someone like Anne-Margaret. Once Robert Zemeckis agreed to direct Universal's B-movie would become something a lot bigger and more bizarre, but most interestingly highlighting two female leads, which apart from Thelma and Louise, which would have come out the previous year, having two women lead your big budget movie wasn't really a thing. 1992 would, however, also yield the excellent A League of Their Own, which I adore, and that has a fantastic majority female cast, and also another example of an actor playing against type with Tom Hanks. That is episode 43 of this podcast, by the way. Robert Zemeckis as a director was always seen to be pioneering in the way he dealt with technology and new technological advances had been made since Industrial Light and Magic had worked on Terminator 2 Judgment Day and The Abyss. Both were seen as strong examples of special effects excellence. ILM was on board for the CG visual effects for Death Becomes Her with Amalgamated Dynamics for the practical effects. And you'll remember, if you've listened, uh, you'll remember Amalgamated Dynamics from my episodes on Tremors and also The Thing. And while they weren't involved with the 1982 John Carpenter movie, they were with the 2011 remake until their work was replaced. But if you want to know more about that, you can check out episode 48 for more on their story with The Thing, or episode 41 for more on Tremors, because their practical effects work on Tremors is brilliant. Um, And also the cinematographer on this movie, Dean Cundy, uh, also of The Thing and Jurassic Park. There's so many links to other Vermal Diorama episodes, but I always love when I get to link to other episodes. So, so yeah, please check out those other episodes if you're interested in special effects like I am. Uh, 
And this movie is very effects-driven in that the movie simply wouldn't work without them. Uh, this was the first and only time Meryl Streep would ever work on such a movie, and that's mainly because she found the process especially torturous. Streep's character Madeline, an ageing Hollywood starlet stuck in a miserable marriage, is bereft when her old rival, uh, and I detest the phrase frenemy, so I'm not going to be saying it. Rival is what I'm going to say. Um, so her rival Helen returns from a period of absence and extreme self-loathing to be successful and beautiful. The two women's intense obsession with one-upping each other means that each is actively plotting against the other. Although arguably Madeline starts the rivalry when she steals Helen's fiancé Ernest without either knowing that the other has taken Liesel's elixir of youth and beauty. When Ernest sees the newly beautiful Helen, together they plot to murder Madeline in an elaborate drunk driving scheme. And while Ernest was a great plastic surgeon back in the day, he's a bit of a bumbling idiot, an alcoholic. And due to Madeline's spiteful tirade of abuse, he pushes her down the stairs in anger. Liesel's warning of take care of your body could not be more appropriate and additionally makes you understand why she has so many buff bodyguards, including Fabio. The shot of Madeline, lifeless at the bottom of the stairs, is perfectly framed in the background with a frantic Ernest in the foreground on the phone to Helen. As Madeline's body contorts back into shape, her head is twisted backwards. And this effect was achieved by filming three times. The first time was Meryl Streep walking backwards wearing a blue-coloured facial covering. The second was just the set and the third was Meryl walking forwards wearing a full blue bodysuit against a blue screen. This meant that the blue hood could be removed from the first shot, replaced with the clean shot, with Meryl's head extracted from the third shot and placed on top of a computer-generated twisted neck, which was match-moved to fit in between Meryl's head and body. Software used for this process included Parallax's Matador paint system for the points in the second shot, and soft image, custom ILM software and rendering, was done using Renderman. And I've mentioned Renderman loads of times on this podcast before. So to be honest, the amount of times I've mentioned Renderman, <laughs> I'm not going to list every episode that I've mentioned Renderman in, but this podcast talks a lot about Renderman. <laughs> so uh, this is another instance of Renderman on this podcast. For Madeline's head stretching scene, uh, post being hit on the head by Helen with a shovel, a full-size practical puppet was also used, which Meryl Streep stood behind, her face partially covered with the puppet's neck folds. Visual effects supervisor Ken Ralston stated that Meryl Streep really didn't know what was going on, since this was her first and only attempt, as I said, at a visual effects-driven movie. Robert Zemeckis reportedly told her, whatever Ken asks you to do, no matter how silly, just go with it, you can trust him. This shovel fight too would accidentally mean Goldie Horn would end up with a small scar on her cheek after accidentally being hit with a shovel. Goldie Horn, whose character Helen gets shot at point blank range in the stomach with a shotgun by Madeline, ends up with a massive hole in her stomach, was used with, again, a mix of CG shots and puppet work. It was visual effects art director Doug Chang who played around with the realism of what would happen to a human body if a shotgun was blasted into your gut. Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly fun exercise to me, but anyway, uh, so it was originally intended that they would be showing the spine and internal organs, but it was decided that it would be too graphic because there's a big difference between a kid's movie that's suitable for adults and an adult's movie that's suitable for kids. And this is very much the latter. Um, and so to keep with the movie's very kind of cartoon violence, he decided to make it a gaping hole, um, 
with the realism of seeing through the body, but with no blood or guts or spinal column. Uh, so physically and biologically, could Helen actually stand without a spinal cord? Probably not. But I'm kind of glad that we don't actually see it. The initial scene where she comes out of the pool with the water trickling out of the hole was Goldie Horn's head, followed by a life-sized torso puppet. And the shots where you can literally see through her were done by having a shaped piece of material on her body, which then could be removed in a similar technique to replacing Meryl Streep's head. Madeline's breasts becoming all perky again. It's a scene that a lot of women uh, would be more than happy to have happen to them. And this was supposed to be achieved with a special pneumatic bra. But in the end, the effect didn't really work. So Meryl Streep's dresser was actually utilised to effectively handle her breasts into shape. Uh, so the dresser stood behind Meryl Streep and effectively <laughs> pushed her breasts up, uh, achieving this kind of very perky effect. The real visual achievement of the movie turned out to be the photorealistic skin textures, which obviously were used throughout the physical effects of Madeline's head and neck being moved around and jiggled up and down. These photorealistic skin textures would pave the way for ILM's dinosaur effects in Jurassic Park. So realistically, what I'm saying is without Death Becomes Her, we would not have Jurassic Park. So I think that's worth thinking about because this type of special effects work really was unprecedented at the time. And while the final shot of the movie was changed, and I'll come to that shortly, the reshot ending where Helen and Madeline both fall down the stairs and shatter at the bottom required ILM's computer graphics artist, Alex Seedon, to write a new piece of software purely for that one scene. Having that saved an additional two weeks of hand-rotoing the effects and produced the final effects shot the very next day. Okay, so the reshot ending. Uh, as it happened, test audiences didn't like the original ending of the movie, where a fleeing Ernest meets a bartender played by Tracy Ullman. She helps him fake his death, and 27 years later, Helen and Madeline find them happily married and retired. So, test audiences didn't approve, and nor did Robert Zemeckis, who ended up completely cutting Tracy Ullman's character, Tony, from the movie, and reworking the ending to show Ernest falling into the pool before escaping and Helen and Madeline resigning themselves to a life together. 37 years later, they attend Ernest's funeral as he is eulogised as essentially living forever due to his adventurous and fulfilling life surrounded by family and friends. They then fall down the steps and shatter. Other scenes in the trailer, but not in the finished movie, include Madeline being stored in the freezer and Madeline speaking with her agent. The title, Death Becomes Her, is actually a bit of a weird title, but not as weird as the other suggested titles, which reportedly came from Bruce Willis, and they were It's Death Baby and My Man Death, which are both rubbish. Uh, in another link to Back to the Future, Helen takes the potion the same day as Back to the Future begins, 26th of October 1985. Also interesting about this movie is the use of mirrors. Uh, there are a lot of mirrors in this movie. It's They're quite prolific. And not just because Madeline and Helen are vain and conceited, but also to show more of the special effects, because a lot of the effects are actually reflected in the mirrors, uh, which I find completely fascinating about this movie. 
Death Becomes Her really is a cautionary tale on the trappings of being obsessed with youth and beauty, which culturally only seem to be getting worse, despite many companies attempting to highlight different standards of beauty. Initially derided for focusing more on effects than characters, I truly think a lot of Death Becomes Her's depth was missed in the 90s. Ernest, a bland character, finishes the movie dying after living a truly happy life, free from the binds of obsession. Having spent his youthful career in plastic surgery, a business that thrives on vanity and success, and so when a glamorous actress shows interest, he's so desperate for security, he blindly marries her and falls into a deep alcoholic depression when he realises beauty really is just skin deep. His spurned ex-fiancée Helen counters this by transforming herself from an overweight patient in a mental health facility to wage war on her love rival Madeline, who's widely seen as past her prime. In Hollywood, youth and beauty still reign supreme, and it's a remarkable comment on Tinseltown's obsession with eternal youth. Immortality is seen by Madeline and Helen as the answer. Youth and beauty are the byproducts of immortal life. The issue with eternal youth isn't youth, but eternity. They are infatuated with being young and beautiful, but have no concept over the eternity part and what that means for a person and their very humanity. It embraces and exemplifies, whilst also mocking humanity's obsessions with youth and beauty, that vanity will never equal a happy life. It's not a movie that dwells on existential crises brought about by eternal life, but it doesn't need to because it answers the question of what the viewer should want, and that's mortality. Growing old, living a life, living your life, your immortality lives on in your loved ones. This is why it's so very important for Helen and Madeline to not succeed. Helen and Madeline are shallow, selfish women who will easily resort to murder to keep themselves on top. Even if they had been morally decent people, the choice to live forever is ultimately something that you shouldn't want. And despite this, I ran a poll on Twitter because uh, I was curious and I asked, if you were offered Liesl's magic potion and you could live and remain beautiful and young forever, would you take it knowing what you know about the side effects? And it was really interesting because it was really, really close. 51.9% say they wouldn't take the potion and 48.1% say they would, which I honestly find a little bit bizarre uh, because my main take from Death Becomes Her was never, this is something that'd be fun to try, but this potion represents hell and living in hell. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to me like anything that anyone should actually want. Despite this, um, thank you to everyone who voted because it was a genuinely interesting result um, and obviously, if 2020 does ever bring about uh, an elixir of youth, then we know that 48.1% of people on Twitter would take it. Uh, <laughs> um, Death Becomes Her has achieved resurrection status of its own in recent years too, as it's been embraced by the queer community. It's screened regularly during Pride Month. Both Helen and Madeline have inspired cosplay and drag performances, and even a runway challenge on iconic reality competition, RuPaul's Drag Race, the challenge of which was won by drag queen Violet Chachki and her tiny, tiny waist. Season five, drag race winner Jinx Monsoon cited the movie as their inspiration to become a drag queen, 
and had previously to becoming a drag race superstar, starred in a YouTube docuseries called Drag Becomes Him. Despite both Madeline and Helen's vapid and evil character traits, their world has not been kind to them. A world which value is placed on beauty, and beauty is your only tradable asset. These are not sympathetic characters per se, but their situation is, and this means that ultimately you can sympathise with them in a weird way. Their story of needing to be something that society says they aren't or shouldn't be is a struggle that many queer people can relate to. The movie has since been hailed as a gay cult classic and a touchstone of the queer community. Speaking of eternal youth, it's time for this week's obligatory Keanu reference. This is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring um, with Keanu Reeves. Uh, Truly, uh, Keanu's link to this film has to be his eternal youth and beauty. Um, It's not known whether he himself has taken the potion, but to be honest, I find that so out of character for a man who's the least vain and most humble person on the planet. Still, questions are there because he really is the epitome of youth and beauty. And whilst this might be a tedious link, um, it's the most obvious one. So I'm taking it. Death Becomes Her was released in the US on the same day as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And no, not the TV show, but the original Christy Swanson movie. It was also released six weeks after aforementioned A League of Their Own. When it came to the DVD release, the original DVD transfer was so notoriously bad, it contained excessive grain, blur and muted colours, and many speculated it was a copy of the Laserdisc. It has since been restored and has also been made available on Blu-ray since 2016. Death Becomes Her was made for $55 million and ended up making $149 million worldwide. So it was never seen as a massive success. A lot of people saw it as a little bit of a failure and it has since found a massive audience. Uh, Like I say, it is now considered a cult classic. It's very, very fun to watch. When it came to awards season, in the following year, in ni- at the start of 1993, it actually ended up beating both Batman Returns and Alien 3 for the Best Visual Effects Oscar at the 65th Academy Award. A TV adaptation was being developed by Bravo in 2012, but this never materialised, despite the rumoured involvement of Robert Zemeckis as executive producer. Kristen Chenoweth was announced to be starring in a Broadway musical adaptation of Death Becomes Her in 2017. She was supposed to be starring as Madeline Ashton. It was thought to have disappeared, but Chenoweth confirmed it is still happening uh, on Kelly Clarkson's talk show in October 2019. No news on who is down to play Helen. Rumours of a movie remake hit the internet in August 2020 with rumours of Kate Hudson, reprising her famous mother's role as Helen and Anne Hathaway as Madeline, with Robert Downey Jr. as Ernest and Lady Gaga as Liesel. It has to be said that the news sites reporting it, the fact that the rumours seem to originate from Facebook, probably doesn't really bode too well uh, as a confirmed and notable source. It's also worth noting that IMDb also does not list the project, which it usually does for rumoured or to-be-announced movies. Right, over to social media thoughts. So what I like to do is each episode, I like to ask on social media what people think of the movie that I'm featuring. So we'll start with Twitter. 
So we have at NFTDT, which is Dave from Not For The Dinner Table, and he says, This movie is pure brilliance with stellar performances from Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep. That fight scene, though, it's one of my all-time favourites and I love watching it every year and the ending is just perfect. At Podcast Riddle said, I am excited. I listen to 10 Things I Hate About You for my morning workout. Tomorrow it's Clueless. Then I can get excited for Death Becomes Her. And you absolutely can, Jules. I hope you're very excited. At Launching the Pilot said, Are you going to talk about the plot holes? And then included a gif of (laughs) Goldie Horn with a gaping hole in her stomach. Um, and I hope that I have talked enough about the plot holes for you. <laughs> there are, they are big. They are massive, massive plot holes. Uh, no blood, no spine, no guts, just massive holes. Um, at Why This Film Pod said, This movie is effing gold. That's all I have to say. Um, I will add that Emily did not use effing. Uh, she used the proper F word. However... I don't swear on this podcast, so I unfortunately had to censor your comments slightly, uh, but I think I think your sentiment was clear. Uh, at oral underscore MFC said, Robert Zemeckis was always pushing the FX envelope and the combination of practical and digital effects is fantastic. Willis chews the gorgeous scenery to bits while Streep and Horn nearly chew on each other. Love this movie. And finally, uh, it's the reappearance of Andy from Geek Salad Radio, who didn't comment last episode, which is bizarre, but maybe he's not a fan of 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, But he says, Death Becomes Her was a feast for the eyes in a summer of great visual movies. It was fun to see Bruce Willis as helpless, a complete 360 from Die Hard. The effects really helped to move the industry further. Moving over to Instagram, we have Katie from at TFGIF podcast. She says, I saw this in the theatre when I was about seven. My aunt took four of us and I was the oldest. My sister and I were both terrified and I don't think we saw the end. I think the final straw for me was when Goldie hits Meryl in the head with a shovel. I lost it and wouldn't watch the movie again for 26 years. I can appreciate it now, but it was a scarring experience back then. I can expect it would be if you were seven. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And finally on Facebook, um, it's not really a comment about the movie, Uh, It's more of a comment on uh, my post, I think, Um, because I put in my post that I was, um, this was obviously a movie featuring Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep, and Natalie commented, and Bruce, uh, with the love heart eyes emoji, Uh, and it is true, Bruce Willis is in this movie, Um, I just don't really focus on him all that much, I have to be honest, but when it comes to my closing thoughts on Death Becomes Her, uh, I, I find it quite fascinating because Death Becomes Her is a biting and cynical and comical look at society's obsession with youth, uh, with Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep killing it, both literally and figuratively. Female rivalry uh, in movies is often seen as tropey, and usually I'd agree, but the simple fact that both Madeline and Helen's actions actively contribute to not only their downfalls, again, quite literally, but also the fact that the only meaningful relationship either gets to experience is their codependency on each other, is a satisfactory ending and a necessary comeuppance. Ernest might not be the best character either, but him refusing the potion was his attempt at dignity, and his subsequent atonement earned him a happy ending. 
I guess the point of this movie really is it's never too late to make positive change in your life. Just don't drink the potion. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Death Becomes Her. If you do like this episode or any episode that I've ever put out, I would love if you would take a moment to leave a hopefully wonderful five-star rating uh, and a little review on something like Apple Podcasts. I've had some really lovely reviews recently and it's really given me uh, a wonderful boost. Um, The other thing you can do if you've already done that, because hopefully you already have done that, is to tell your friends about this podcast and share it around because that's the only way it's ever going to get bigger and better is if people share it and tell people about it. As I have over 50 episodes, I'm almost at 60, which is bizarre, um, I'm no longer listing them all at the end of episodes. Instead, I'm going to try to recommend other similarly themed episodes. And basically, if you like this episode on Death Becomes Her, you might also like episode four on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, obviously with the Robert Zemeckis link. Uh, episode 43, A League of Their Own. Uh, I did mention it a little bit earlier, but it's a really, really great movie. And again, it's got some a really great female cast and also contains a little bit of female rivalry. Um, but ultimately, it's the best sports movie ever made. Um, a little bit of a curveball. <laughs> That's A League of Their Own reference. A little bit of a curveball. Um, number 45, Little Shop of Horrors. And I've really kind of gone with that because it's also got some really great puppet work. Um, and it's just a really, really wonderful movie to watch. Bit out there because obviously this isn't really a musical. It's got a musical interlude bit, but it's not really a musical. But just watch Little Shop of Horrors. It's great. Um, episode 48, The Thing, because I've mentioned it. It's got some great special effects. And to be honest, I've recommended The Thing quite a lot, actually, in previous episodes. But I really do think it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And obviously, episode 57, Jurassic Park. Because as I said, without this movie, we would not have Jurassic Park. So bear that in mind when you next watch Jurassic Park. Please feel free to give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Do you think I got it right? Do you think I should have recommended something else? Get in touch with me on social media and let me know. So the next episode is inconceivable, actually, because I've put it off for a long time. And where this podcast is concerned, I'm a big believer in only bringing out your big guns when you need to. And you basically keep the really good stuff in reserve for when it's needed most. And 2020 has been mostly awful. Uh, generally as years go so right now we need Wesley we need Buttercup we need Inigo Montoya and Fezzik and Vizzini heck I'd even take some R-U- R-O-U- <laughs> R-O-U-S's why can't I say R-O-U-S's <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of what we've been dealt with in 2020 we need the Princess Bride So episode 60 of Verbal Diorama will be a kissing book and it'll be as you wish because I know a lot of listeners are big fans of The Princess Bride and I know Laurel from The Midnight Myth will agree with me that it is a perfect movie. You can find any of my other 58 episodes in your podcast app uh, to stream or download. Please make sure that you subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama where you can get in touch with me. You can also sign up to support the show financially if you want to. You are under no obligation to do so, but if you do, tiers start from $2 a month and you get access to the upcoming schedule. Um, you get a shout out and you get early release episodes as well. Massive thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike and Griff. They all drank from the potion and are all eternally youthful, gorgeous and amazing. And I announced last episode that Verbal Diorama now has a merchandise store. Wow, merchandise! Uh, you can buy t-shirts, hoodies, mugs and tote bags. Currently in two designs with more to come hopefully if things go really well. And for the month of September 2020 only, you can get 15% off all items in the store with promo code VD15OFF. So that's VD15OFF. You can email me general hellos or feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with me at my website, verbaldiorama.com. You can also pop over to Film Stories. They are currently running a Kickstarter to help support film stories going forward please if you can afford to donate to the kickstarter please do film stories has changed my life it has given me so much confidence and it's brought me so much joy and i really really want to see it continue to thrive so if you can support it financially through the kickstarter that would be awesome if you can't then just go over to the website and click some ads or something and it will generate some revenue which everything helps so or you can buy some magazines because I write for the magazine and I write for the website so in supporting me you're supporting them so it's win-win and finally sempre viva live forever well for a while anyway bye <laughs>